Good morning, Mission View. My name is Matt. Um, if this is your first time here, if you're joining us online for the first time, I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad you're with us this morning. We are in a, a sermon series right now called Fear, Anxiety, Depression, Oh My. We've hit the fear part. We've hit the anxiety part. And today we get to talk about depression. It's everybody's favorite subject. We get all excited and happy when we talk about depression, right? No, it's uh, as I was studying through um, the God's Word, there's really no mention of the word depression in the Bible. But as I was going through it, there's a lot of talk of deep sorrow. So today, we're actually going to look at a really a neat guy in Scripture. You've probably heard of the prophet Elijah. He's kind of a famous prophet in the Old Testament. He did some amazing things that we're going to look at. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings. We're going to be 1 Kings chapter uh, 18 and 19, or 19 and, well, 18 and, 1820 through 1918. That's easy for me to say, right? 1 Kings 1820 through 1 Kings 1918. So uh, we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at Elijah's life. We're going to look at some of the things that God did through him. And uh, we're going to see some really high highs for him. Like he had these mountaintop experiences and man, did he hit the valleys. He hit the valleys. I was, uh, as I was studying this, it was, um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, known as the Prince of Pre- Preachers, he had said, and I'm, I'm going to misquote him, this isn't a direct quote, but he, he quoted somebody in the scripture, I'm going to just throw this out there, um, and the quote goes something like this, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. And Spurgeon was doing this talk on melancholia, or depression as we call it now, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. Can anybody guess who in Scripture said those depressed words? Anyone? Jesus. That's right. It was Jesus. And Spurgeon, in his sermon on depression, said that um, he really, what he gets to is that how can we call depression sin when Christ our Lord struggled with it and knew no sin? So Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking, knowing his fate, was, my soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. Elijah kind of gets there too, as we're going to see in our text today. And I just, as we're talking about this, um, I I just want to say right up front, um, as a counselor, depression isn't something we take lightly. It is a real struggle that people walk through. It is difficult. Uh, sometimes there's no words to put on this. And I, I think what the picture that gets painted here through Elijah speaks right directly to it. And I think Elijah was walking through depression. And we'll point out some of those things as we look through this. But you know what? Life is, for all of us, life is full of ups and downs. Sometimes it feels like we are on that mountaintop. And then it feels like we're right in the valley of the shadow of death. And I mean, we don't have to go far. We can watch the news. Look at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Watch politicians, movie stars, musicians, and even pastors rise and fall. I mean, it's all out there for anybody to see, right? We've seen it all. We've seen the guys that are out there, and this is the cream of the crop. This is, this is the guy, or this is the girl. She's, she's the star. And then literally, like three weeks later, they're just like tearing them apart on the news, right? 
their fall from grace. It's, it's been amazing to, to watch those things. We, grow, we, as Christians, go through seasons of victories where we're walking in God's grace in amazing ways, and then we walk through times of that journey through the valley of the shadow of death that is so difficult and so hard, it's sometimes hard to put into words. Now, like I said earlier, this word depression is a newer word. It really didn't even, wasn't even coined as a term until the mid-1800s. I think it was 1856. And it was known as melancholia before that. And you can trace this melancholia idea or depression idea, like I said, all the way back into scriptures. And um, so it's going to be exciting to look at, see what happened to Elijah, how he dealt with it, and what God did in him and through him in that time. Let's go ahead and pray before we read God's word this morning for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is truth, that it is life to us, Father. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who lives in us, would bring your word to light today. Make it, make it real to us in our lives today, Father, as only you can do. Give us understanding, Lord, that it will pierce deep into our hearts and to our minds, that we would walk out of here different people than we walked in. God, I just surrender to you right now. I say, have your way in me. Use me for your kingdom, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We're here in 1 Kings, and we're going to pick up about this king named Ahab. This is kind of where Elijah was. This was his timing. And this King Ahab, I want you to kind of see what's going on in the time, because it's a, it is a hot mess in Israel. So here's what the Bible says about this guy, this King Ahab, and and I'm actually back in chapter 16, verse 29, but I just want to kind of give you who this guy was and who Elijah was dealing with as Elijah the prophet speaking. The prophet spoke God's word to God's people. So Elijah would speak God's word to the king. And so this is the guy that Elijah was dealing with. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Okay, that is, that is a huge, huge statement, because there were some really bad kings before Ahab. There were some really bad guys. So we get a statement here done, who had done more evil in the sight of the Lord than anybody before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made Ashrath. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. All right, that's really, that's kind of what's going on with Israel as Elijah is the, the prophet who God has called. Now, what, what does God do in Elijah's life? So there's a lot of scripture here. So what I, I wanted to do was kind of tell you the story, and I'm going to give you some homework to go back and read chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19 this week, as opposed to me reading you all four of those chapters. We would be here the whole sermon time probably as we go through it. I'm going to tell you his story, Okay. And this is kind of, of what happens as um, we go through this as Ahab, Ahab reigns. So Ahab angers God, and God sends a drought. Of course, 
the drought is, is um, told to Ahab by Elijah. So Elijah predicts that the, there's not going to be any rain and that they're going to be having this massive drought. I'm sure Ahab wasn't really happy about that, was he? When this prophet comes and says, you've angered the Lord and therefore there's going to be a drought and everything else. And as he's worshiping Baal and all these other false gods and different things. So you have this, this, this prophetic foretelling of no rain, right? And of course it happens because God's word always happens. And um, this other really cool thing happens. God sends Elijah to this widow, Zarephath. And he goes to, to get food from her, to kind of be in hiding, and she's going to take care of him, right? So he goes and he asks her for food, and she, has, she doesn't have much. She's a widow. She has very little, and she, she says, all right, I don't have much, Elijah, but what I have, I'm going to offer to you. So he eats the food that she gives him, and he says, don't worry about it. God's going to multiply the food, and you will never run out of this. You will never run out of this food. And, and it happened. So God multiplied the food through Elijah here in this widow's house. Miracle, right? You're like, wow, this is crazy. It gets even crazier because this widow's child dies. And, and, and she's like, man of God, why have you been sitting here? You know, are, this, are, you, is, are you the cause of my daughter's death? And he, he's like, no, this can't happen this way. So he goes upstairs and brings back to life the widow's daughter. So he's multiplying food. God's multiplying food through him. He's raising the dead, and he's doing, like, amazing, miraculous things. So that, that's kind of what's going on before here. It's a, not daughter. I said daughter. It's the widow's son. Sorry about that. The next one is Elijah has to go and confront Ahab again because Ahab's not backing off of his demon worship, of his, his idol worship. And so Elijah goes back, and he confronts Ahab, and they have this this huge standoff. Now, this is the story that Elijah is famous for, right? This is where he confronts the prophets of Baal. There's, there's like 850 prophets of this false god. And Elijah's like, bring them on. It's time that Israel know who the one true God is again. So bring on these false, these false gods. Prophets, you, why don't you set up your altar? Well, let's set up two altars. You set up your altar, I'll set up my altar, and uh, we'll, whoever can call down the fire from their God, the fire from heaven, that's the one true God. So he goes and he has, there's like 850 of these false prophets, and there's these, these, these altars that are built. They build theirs first, and, and Elijah's just kind of standing back there, they're watching him, right? And, he's, and they're, they're, they build the altar, they're calling down for fire, they're doing their chants, and they're doing their little dances and everything else. And Elijah's like, well, where's your, where's your God, guys? What's going on? Is he in the bathroom? Uh-huh, uh-huh. He's going to the bathroom, huh? Too busy for you. Oh, maybe he's just tired. Maybe he's sleeping. And, and, and Elijah's just throwing these jabs, man, like, like comp. You can hear, as you read through it this week, you're going to hear this confidence, this like, this is like, oh, yeah, you guys are going down. You guys are going down. And he just gives jab after jab after jab. And it goes, he takes it like a step further to, you know, like that whole nother level, right? He gets, his, he gets his altar and he's like, I see your altar, guys. It's pretty good. But uh, why don't we, uh, with my altar, let's just, just drench it in water. You know, I, I, it's going to be fire from heaven. So this is going to be like the real fire, man. So let's just drench it in water. In fact, let's just build a trench around it. Fill the trench with water and we'll just... You know, let's make this a real competition here. You had your little, you know, dry sticks over there. Let's just wet this thing down and see what happens, right? 
well, we, the story goes that, that Elijah calls down fire from heaven. God sends this fire from heaven and just obliterates this altar, man. I mean, there's, there's nothing left. And these, these false prophets are found out, man. And the Israelites know the one true God, Yahweh, I am, is I am. The only true God. And the story goes that Elijah kills all these 850 prophets, slays them. God is known as the one true God. And, and Elijah is this like, as you read this story, you're just like, man, this dude is crazy. This guy like takes risk after risk. And then he just have this confidence in God. I look at it, you, you read that story, you're just like, this is crazy that he would do that kind of thing. Well, Israelites see what was going on, and the drought ends, and the Lord sends the rain, and Elijah kind of prophesies that as well. And we have this huge mountaintop experience of raising the dead, multiplying food, prophecy after prophecy, defeating these false prophets of Baal. I mean, you would think, like, if anybody would never deal with depression, anybody would never deal with fear. If, if there was anybody that would never have any anxiety, it'd be this guy who was walking hand in hand with God, right? Elijah, the man, right? He would never deal with it. But I want to pick up our story here in chapter 19. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. What's that next verse? Then he was afraid. He raised the dead, multiplied food, like slain 850 false prophets, man of God, man of power. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree which wasn't much of a tree, actually. And he asked that he might die. Wow. Saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on a hot stone in a jar of water. He ate and drank lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Man, as we look at this story and we see the life of Elijah a little bit, it's, there's there's some parallels here with our lives. Not that we're raising the dead or multiplying food or anything like that, but I don't know about you, but as I've journeyed on this Christian journey with God, there's been times in my life that I, I experience things that I, I just know it's God. There's been those times where I, I'm, I'm facing something really difficult, and there's just no light at the end of the tunnel. 
And then you get a little glimmer of that light, and it's, it's a freight train coming at you, right? You're at your bottom. Have you ever been there? You're at the bottom of the barrel, and you're like, oh, there's a light. Oh, no, that's the freight train coming to run me over. And then in that, that last hour, that last minute, God shows up in a miraculous way, in a powerful way. And we have those, those moments, these, these, like, these mountaintop experiences and these low experiences. And the first feeling in your notes is this, and it's something we all know, but it's something we need to be reminded of. The Christian journey is full of ups and downs. This journey we're on is full of ups and downs. We need to expect the ups and downs. That's why I'm putting this in here. We need to expect the ups and downs. It's, it's not always going to be easy or pretty. It gets hard and ugly. And so here's, here's what we need to do. If we're expecting the highs and we're expecting the lows, we need to have a plan for the valley. We need to have a plan for the valley. I love how Mike talked about it last week. And it was the, I don't know if you remember it or not, but he talked about this thing called the Ebenezer Strategy. This Ebenezer strategy. And it's, it's remembering, even writing down those times in your life where you know that you know that you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there was this God happening in your life. God provided a person that spoke life into you. God provided a financial relief from your, you know, something that was going on. Or, or God just spoke to you through his word and you knew it was God just moving and changing. It was remembering that salvation moment when God came into your life and revealed his grace and mercy in a life-changing way. It's this Ebenezer strategy where we have these things written down that we can go back to when we're in the valley, right? Having that strategy, having something set up that we know that we know that we know. Because honestly, in the valley, it's hard to know that we know that we know. Amen? Let's just be honest about it, right? It's difficult it's hard. There's been times in my life, as we're in church and you're being honest, I'll be honest with you, there's been times in my life where I'm going through something, I'm like, I was pretty sure there was a God until this happened, right? I was 100% sure, okay, maybe there is a God, but I thought he was nice. I thought he had my back. I mean, I even sing this song that says he'll never let me down, and right now I feel like he let me down. Right? I mean, if we're all honest, if, we, if we're all honest with ourselves, we have these moments. And this, these thoughts and concerns that, that come into our minds and seep their way into our hearts aren't necessarily sinful. Now, they can be. They're not necessarily sinful. These are temptations and lies from the enemy that try and sneak their way in. And, and change our hearts and change our minds and distract us from the truth that we know, that we know, that we know. That's why this Ebenezer strategy is such a great idea. Because it's easy in the valley to miss, to miss what God has already done. And then if we miss that, we miss what God's doing in the valley. We sing a song here, and it's one of my favorites. I love that we sing it. It's called Nothing is Wasted. Nothing is Wasted. It, it's this idea that in God's kingdom, which you are a part of if you've asked Christ into your heart, if you have surrendered your will to his and you believe in him for salvation through Christ alone, that, that this, you have this, this promise, this, 
this work that God has done in us. We have that in him. We're going to go through these ups and downs. We're going to have the mountaintops. What, what about, we have the valleys, right? What about the mountaintop experience? It's easy to stand up here and talk, oh, we need to have a plan for the valley. But when is it that we really forget about God? It's not in the valley, guys, right? It's not in the valley. I, that's, in the valley, I'm always like, oh, God. I have that super spiritual prayer that goes, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I need you right now, right? That's the, my super spiritual in the valley prayer, right? But what about when we're on the mountaintop, when we're having that mountaintop experience? That's, that's the moment. Those are the times that we have a tendency to forget about God. I mean, things are going, going well. Things are going good. I don't, I don't need God at that time. I'm just moving along, doing life, living life, and it's great. What we, what we don't realize is that we need God just as much on the mountaintop and through the victories than we just as much or more than we do when we are in the valley. That's the, that is a huge deception the enemy uses for us. And that's something we really need to grasp. So we need to have a plan for the mountaintop. So what's, what could be, what's a kind of a practical good plan? Um, what do we do when we have the great victories, the amazing mercies of God are prevalent in our lives? What do we do? We run to God in those times just as much or more than we run to God when we're in the valley. I think this is, this is, a, this is a place where a lot of Americans are today. A lot of American Christians are today. We're at a place in our lives where things are going well, where things are cared for, where uh, bank accounts, savings accounts, and health insurance, and doc, all, the, all the amazing blessings that we have here in America mask our desperation, our desperate need for God every day. Not just every day, but every minute, every second. That is, it's this need, this desperation that's masked by the things that have been allotted to us and where we're living. I talk to so many of our missionary families and missionaries in third world countries, and, and I hear over and over and over again that how much America needs Jesus. They're starting to send missionaries here because we are walking around with this idea that we don't need God because things are going well for us. We have to have this plan for the mountaintop. We have to run to Christ on the mountaintop right now, every Sunday, every day, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We have to run to God and live that life of intimacy with Him, knowing that every victory and every good thing that comes to us comes from him, and every victory that we're seeking comes from only him working in our lives. So what can we do? We worship. That's the first thing we can do. Write that down. It's a really important one. The Bible commands us to gather together as a church and sing songs, hymns to one another and to the Lord to encourage one another, to remind ourselves of God's greatness, to remind ourselves of our desperation, to remind ourselves of God's goodness. Worship, give Him praise, sing to Him, pray prayers of thanksgiving, acknowledge His goodness in the victories. This is another, this is another really good one, I like this. That in those victories, in those moments, where God has done these amazing things in our lives, that is our opportunity to pour out praise on the only one worthy of it. That is huge. 
That is, that is a huge point. Uh, per, just personally, um, you've, you've probably come to me before, maybe some of you, there's a few of you, maybe one or two, and, and after a sermon you'll say, Matt, great sermon today. And one of my trained first responses to those encouraging words are praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because church, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing but Christ and him crucified. I bring to you God's word. I bring to you his truth. I bring to you Christ and him crucified. And I am 110% dependent on the Holy Spirit doing a miraculous work in your heart right now. I have no wise words of man's wisdom that will change your life. I have no good thing to bring you other than this amazing Savior who left heaven, put on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And all I can say is come. Come and give your life to this one who's worthy. Come, give your praise to this one who's worthy. I've got nothing but him. So I, when you say, good sermon, Matt, all I say is praise the Lord because I got nothing. And I'm not lying about that. I'm not joking about that. And this is no, this is no hyperbole. This is, this is the truth. Every Sunday, I walk up here and I say, well, God, you better be God <laughs> because I'm still Matt. <laughs> right? It's taking those opportunities, every single one of them, and recognizing the grace and mercy of God and, and any goodness that's in our lives, even the small things. I mean, I look at my life, and, and I, as I go through life, and if any good comes out of me, if any good comes to me from being a husband, if any good comes from me being a father, if any good comes from me being a pastor, it's not because Matt's a good person, because I'm wicked and evil and deceitful and wrong. But there's a good Holy Spirit living in me who's changing me and growing me. And any good that comes out of me is because of him. And you, that's the same thing. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you. And he's changing you and growing you every day. You are not the same person you were a year ago because God is God in your life. Give him praise for it. Thank him for it. Recognize him for it. Tell everyone around you about him for it. That's what he's talking about. That's, that's, this, that's how we, we remember this Ebenezer strategy. That's what it means. We remember those things. We write these things down, not just for the valley, but for the mountaintop as well. All right, I got a little preachy there. Second point, let's move to the second point. I'm going to go to verse 11, and this is really good. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. That's a pretty big wind, isn't it? Tearing apart rocks, moving rocks, tearing apart mountains. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Here you have Elijah. He's at the lowest of the low. 
after this huge mountaintop experience, defeating these false prophets, doing all this amazing, raising the dead, multiple, he runs from Jezebel. All it took was to her saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. Ah, I'm going to run and hide. And he feels like a total loser. That he's hiding. He's probably sitting there thinking the same thing I'm thinking. How can I be like this? I thought I was the prophet of God. I thought God had my back. I, I, I was doing so good. Depression's a weird thing, man. It messes with our heads, right? And then it messes with our hearts. And here you have Elijah, and he's like, God, just let me die. Take me now. That's it. I'm, you know, I got nothing. God sends this wind. And I, I bet you, I bet money on this. I bet Elijah was, well, I wouldn't bet money because I'm a pastor. But anyways, you know what I'm saying. But I, God sends this huge wind, and, and Elijah's at this cave and on this edge, and this huge wind comes, and I bet he's like, He's in this deep depression, probably sleeping. And the big wind comes up, and he looks up, and he's like, this is it. This is it. This is what I've been praying for. I knew it. Finally, God's going to deliver me from crazy Jezebel. This is it. Nothing. Just a big wind that probably almost killed him. I mean, mountains were coming down. Rocks were coming down. He's in a cave. He's like, ah, I thought you were coming, Lord, but you're just sitting there waiting to kill me. Okay, you're answering my prayer. No. God wasn't in the wind. Puff, puff, back down he goes. The earth starts to quake in this cave. This is it. This has to be it. I know this is God. He's coming to save me. Finally, it wasn't the wind. That was just a storm. Okay, Lord, you're in this. No, nothing. Crickets, man. Well, earthquake and crickets. I don't know if you could hear the crickets over the earthquake, but it wasn't there. And on and on, right? Ups and downs and ups and downs, I'm sure, as Elijah's in there. Nothing. There's nothing And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Second point is this. In the darkness, listen for the whisper. In your darkness, listen for the whisper. Because God is with you. God is speaking to you. And God will never, ever, ever, ever let you go. God is with you. He is speaking to you. And he will never let you go. Three words I want you to write down right now. Three things that we can do in the darkness, in your lowest moments. Look, listen, and love. Write those down. Look, listen, and love. Here's what that means. Look at what God has done. Use that Ebenezer strategy. Look back and look and see what God has done in your life, in the life of those around you, and then the lives of the saints all throughout history. Look, listen, listen to God's voice right here. Listen to his voice. There's times in our lives when we are down and out and we read this book and it feels like nothing's there. It feels hollow and it feels empty. Let me tell you, Christian, it is not. It is doing a work in and through your heart that is changing you. It may not feel like anything. It may feel like work. It is not just work. It is a working that is happening in you. This is alive. It's alive and it changes us. 
It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces down into our hearts, deep, deep, separating bone from marrow, it says. It is living. This is a living word that never comes back void and always does what it's supposed to do. In your darkness, listen for the whisper and listen for God's voice and don't give up on his word. He is speaking to you. Listen to other believers. Also listen to other believers. Man, when you're in the mess, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees, isn't it? We've all been there. You're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. This is my problem right here. It's right here in front of me. This is my problem. And we're walking around with these blinders on. We can't see where we're going. This is my problem. And I'm walking towards the edge of the stage, and I can't see it because I've got these blinders on. And this is my problem. And you're going, Matt, you're going to die. Matt, stop. Right there. Stop. And I'm missing. I just, I can't. I'm in the blinders. I'm missing this forest for this tree that's right in front of me. Listen. Listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are speaking truth to you, who are speaking life to you. God is using them and speaking through them to you. Go to those trusted advisors. Those seasoned saints who will speak truth and life into your situation. Look and listen. The last one is love. Look, listen, and love. And I'm not talking about the ooey-gooey feeling, right? I'm not talking about the rom-com feeling. I'm talking about real love. Love is a verb. It's an action that we take. There's an emotion that goes along with it, but that is secondary. The world's making it, made it primary. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave. Gave. Love is this selflessness, this action that we take, this giving that we do, trusting that the emotions will follow because we're being obedient to the one who is love, and we are going to love because he commands us to love even our enemies. So we look and we listen and we love. We do love, trusting that feeling will follow because that's what God said. Look, listen, and love. This is navigating the battlefield of the mind, right? I mean, as we get into this and these, these thoughts and these feelings that are so powerful and strong, we, we have to navigate the the battlefield of the mind. We have to, how we say it in our house, we have to watch our stinking thinking. Sometimes we have some stinking thinking, right? We're going down the wrong path, and we need somebody to be like, no, 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 that's not the Lord. That's not true. This is what God's word says is true. Stop that stinking thinking. And the way we stop that is that we preach the truth to ourselves. And here's a, here's a really cool thing, is we each need to be our own best preacher. You need to be your own best preacher. Not me, not the guy you go home and watch throughout the week. You. You need to be your own best preacher. Preach the truth of God's word to yourself. As you're reading it, make it personal. Because it is personal. When you're reading Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, make it personal. Because it's personal and it's telling you who you are. It is God, through Paul, telling you who you are. Make it personal and preach it to yourself every day. Be your own best preacher. Last thing. The last thing. 
Verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. I already read that. And there's two phrases I was going to have you underline as we read through that section. And it's the same phrase two times. I think it's important anytime you see something in Scripture repeating itself. is arise and eat. Arise and eat. The third point is this. God wasn't done with Elijah and he's not done with you. Arise and eat. Sometimes, that's all you got. Arise and eat. Maybe you're watching in bed right now and you've been there for two weeks. God's saying, arise and eat. Arise and eat. Elijah's laying there. He's given up on life. He said, God, kill me now. And God says, arise and eat. As long as we draw breath on this planet, God has a plan to work his will and his way in and through our lives. You were created to glorify God in this life. And he's not going to let you go any longer without doing that. He is going to come and do something in you to be glorified in and through your life. Elijah had given up. He was thrown in the towel. And God says, no, you're still breathing, brother. You're, you're still mine. You're still breathing, and I still have plans for you. Arise and eat. And Elijah did. And then he went back to bed. That angel came back a second time. Arise and eat. And he ate food. Now, get this. He ate food from heaven, right, that this angel had fixed. And he went on this journey, man, and that food, this heavenly food, sustained him for like 40 days and 40 nights. When we're obedient to God, when you obey God, God is faithful. Period. God is faithful. When he says, arise and eat, when he tells us and commands us to do things in his word, and we do those things, we find a faithful, true God that we can trust. And God wasn't done with Elijah, and he's not done with us. If you're here today in person listening to this, God has plans for you. He's not done with you. If you're watching online, God is not done with you. God has plans for you. Arise and eat. Elijah didn't feel like it. I'm sure he didn't want to rise. I'm sure he didn't want to eat. But he did. What is it that God's calling you to? What are those next steps God's calling you to? What is your arise and eat? It might not be arise and eat, but maybe it's serving somewhere. Maybe it's going on that missions trip. Maybe God has put a burden on your heart for orphans or widows or, or people who are struggling to find a job or, or struggling to make ends meet and have food. Maybe there's a ministry that God has put on your heart. What's your arise and eat? What is God calling you to do? Our obedience to him never comes back empty. God is always faithful. 
I wanted to just take a, a moment. I, I, I know that there's probably somebody here or somebody watching, more than one probably, that are dealing with depression or fear or anxiety. And maybe, you've, maybe you're on medications and struggling through all this crazy, Mike, you can come on up, and struggling with all this stuff. I just want to pray for you right now as Mike's coming up, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But let's pray together uh, and pray for those who are struggling with this. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly come to you. And like your son said, like Jesus said, sometimes our souls are exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. So, Father, I pray for all those who are at that point in their life right now who are struggling like Christ and struggling like Elijah did with these things. God, I pray that you would work a miracle in their hearts and in their lives, that, they, that you would speak truth to their minds and to their hearts that would change, that would just change them, change where they're at, Father. Reveal and, and remind them of the destiny that they have in you through Christ. That you would be glorified in and through our lives. And Father, all of us here, we just say we surrender to you. And help us to come to you on the mountaintop. And come to you in the valley just the same. Because you are God and you are good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for coming up again, Mike. I'm going to grab my sheet here. I left it on the podium. How are you guys doing? Have you enjoyed this sermon series so far? Good. Praise the Lord. I know I have the, the work just preparing for it and everything else have been, has been, man, awesome. God's really dealt with me on some things, too. I think all of us have pockets of um, lack of trust, I should say, in our lives, right? And God's not going to let us have those all the time. He's going to deal with us in those places. And I know he has with me as well. Oh, thanks, Mike. Oh, you've got an iPad too. You're awesome. One of the cool guys. Well, um, as we talk through depression, uh, what, can you share just, I'm not going to, I'm going to go off script here for a little bit, but um, tell us, what are some of the, great success stories you've had working with some people through, you know, through depression. No names or anything, of mm -hmm. course, but what are some of the shocking things you've seen God do in people's lives? Well, just, just transformation. Just, uh, there's, there are um, people who have really faced some very, very, very painful experiences of depression. Yeah. People have abandoned them. They've, maybe they've lost a marriage. Um, boy, the faces and the names are there. Um, no names, right? No names, okay. yeah. But pe people who, who, who suddenly ha have realized, number one, I'm not alone. Uh. I'm not alone. My, one of the questions here is what, what one verse, if I could give anybody, Elijah, anybody, this one verse is a verse I give often, and it's from 2 Corinthians 6, just very simple, a couple of words. Um, as sorrowful, always rejoicing. Mm. So some people, you know, who have had some of the, 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 the greatest success don't insist that all pain goes away to find the joy and the meaning in Christ. And so I've had people who just have just said, I think my life is meaningless. 
will this pain ever go away? And I feel so distant from the Lord. And they begin to realize it's a fallen world, and they've begun to realize there can be joy in the middle of sorrow. And that's, mm-hmm. it sounds paradoxical, kind of crazy, right. but those who have just continue to move forward. And what you alluded to before, God does not waste pain. So sometimes yeah. people say, you know, I'm struggling with the pain of my, my sexual abuse as a, as a kid, or you know, my failure, my job, that sort of thing, or my failure, my marriage, and, and God's kind of done with me. And then to realize, no, 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 no. God is actively working in ways you, you, you've never imagined. And when that takes hold of a person, then hope is restored. Meaning and purpose is restored. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I like this first one we were talking about. As a Christian psychologist, counselor, do you find themes and traits that are typical of someone who seeks counseling for depression? I thought that was good. In in Elijah, and what what he did here, yeah, absolutely. And let's clarify. Let's let's. This is the last of the series. So we we had said that um, anxiety is a a general threat of loss. Something bad's going to happen. I don't know. It's just going to happen. So that's the feelings of anxiety. And where fear is a specific concern about something being lost, you know, I'm going to lose my job. I just, I've been told it's going to be gone, or my health, I have cancer, whatever it may be. Depression is an actual or perceived loss of something that I believe is vital to my well-being. And that's what happened with, uh, with uh, Elijah. Yeah, there's characteristics of Elijah. Isolation. Yep. Yep. You know, the poop hit the fan, and, and, and he... he pulled back, he pulled back, and the other thing with Elijah is he didn't build a, a network of people who would sustain him. He, he refused Obadiah. Yeah. He, he stayed yep. out of the prophets, and so he was isolated, and, and if there's anything we can do when you start to shut down with depression, man, get involved with people. Yeah. Get, on, get on your feet, get going. He had a, arise and eat, right? Arise <laughs> and eat. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I, I tell people, and I practice this myself, because when I get down, don't want to get out of the you know, alarm goes off, don't want to get out of bed another day. Sometimes it's like put one foot over the side of the bed, then the other, and just say, praise God. Just praise God. Just, just say it, no matter how you feel, no matter how you feel, and get moving. Yeah. <laughs> get in yeah. motion. But lack of motivation, Elijah had no motivation. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm toast. I, I, I can't do it. He was exhausted. Also, Elijah displayed anger at himself. I think if you dig in a little bit there, you could make a case that he was, he was angry at God. I mean, he was angry. I'm, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't use me again. I don't want to be used. I don't want to be fooled again. And, and so he had a sense of guilt, shame, failure, all characteristics of, of depression that need to be worked on. Yeah. It's clear Elijah was disillusioned. Yeah. Um, when Jezebel didn't embrace Jehovah as God, but held on to her false gods, does a disillusionment play a role in becoming depressed? It's huge. It's huge. And this is kind of is a theme that has been developed through this series, and that is... I think my God wouldn't do this, and my God would do that, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of I'm expecting some results, whether I know it or not. Right. And maybe may may results that I think God will do, but I also may be expecting things out of myself. It's like um, Elijah never would have thought that he would have been terrified of being killed by Jezebel, and he found he was a coward. He found he was a coward. So the disillusionment, and, and this is a critical piece, is life is not what I thought it was. God is not what I thought I was. And I'm either going to succumb, pull back into this depression and all the thoughts that go along with it, or I'm going to have the courage to redefine really who I am, 
who God is and what to expect and not expect from him. It's a, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I like you were talking about identity as well in our correspondence. Yeah. Elijah was a great man of God, the prophet of his time. Why wasn't telling himself the truth? You are chosen by God. Why didn't he, you know, you know, I am Elijah, the great prophet. Why wasn't that enough to like get him past this struggle? Again, it, it ties into a theme that we've been talking about. You and I can sit here and talk, and I can say, well, God's on his throne, and I just, I just trust him, and yeah, that feels good. <laughs> so that's in my head. That's easy. That's easy. But, but when my body goes through either the, 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 let me just say the trauma of failure, mm. the trauma of disillusionment, my brain is not in charge right now. And all the precepts, all the things that I've learned, valuable as they are, they're less powerful at that point yeah. than the experience that I've just gone through. Oh my goodness, this failure. Oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a coward. And reaching towards those is, is very hard. So identity. And, and this, is, this is where we combine the two. So Elijah was a winner. Yeah. Everything he did worked. He was on top. He was a man that was feared. He walked down the street. Hey, there's Elijah. Look out. There, there, there's the man. There, there's Elijah. And he had never experienced real failure. And so his identity was a great prophet, a winner. Now, guess what? He had to encounter that he was a coward, that he was a failure. And he didn't know how to fail. He didn't know how to fail and hold on to the strength and goodness of God because he thought it was now him. I'm the man. Yeah. So he lost his identity. And now that happens, well, real, real quick, there, there's a statistic that really, really threw me um, because, because Elijah became suicidal. And you wonder, who is the most likely to commit suicide? demographically. You'd think, well, maybe it's inner city people who are really struggling in despair and all that sort of thing. Do you know who it is? Who? Older white males. Hmm. is the largest demographic of, of, of people who actually commit suicide, followed not too far by females. And, and a lot of it, I'm convinced, is loss of identity. I, I, I'm after no, retirement, maybe? Yeah, after mid, middle of life crisis? 60 and older. Well, 60 and older, okay. 60 and older. Yeah, but I've lost my identity. I'm no longer revered. I'm no longer looked up to. They don't ask me to play the guitar in, in the worship service. That's right. You know, I mean, uh, this, it's, it's, it's coming. It's coming. No, I'm, I'm close. <laughs> really close. But, and so, Only when they're desperate. They... And so, again, that who I thought I was, I no longer am. And have I ever done the work of really solidifying my identity in Christ? Mm. And some people will have the courage to do that and the strength to do that, and the support to do that, and other people will give up. Yeah. It's too hard. It's just too hard. Identity's huge. That's uh, one of the, I think it's probably one of the biggest things for us today. And that's, Ephesians is a great resource. If, if you're struggling with identity, if you're, you know, wondering what your next is, maybe you've just lost a job, maybe you've just retired, maybe you're just wondering what that next, go to Ephesians. Read through the book of Ephesians. It's a short book. You can read through it in one sitting. Read it over and over and over again. And it is, it is a great um, biblical basis and foundation to build from on your identity in Christ, who God says you are. You can even read through chapters 1 and 2 and put your name in there as he's talking about you. And, uh, and the critical piece there is in Christ. In Christ. Not yes. my own pizzazz and what, how well I Not can do. Not how awesome I am. Yeah, I'm awesome. Just awesome. But God's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, does God ever speak to someone like he did to Elijah? Get up, get going, 
I've got work for you to do. Yeah, I, I think he does. And let me tell you how he does it. First of all, I, I wanted to clarify the Ebenezer's are stones. We can do the right writing. Yeah. But some people have just a pile of stones. I'm saying, but each stone is from that experience that you described before about God. And so that's one of the ways that God can tell us to get up and get going. There, there, are, there are two things here. And you, you brought out the one, and that is God's not done with us yet. Right. You know, our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. That's right. And realizing that, wait, there's more going on here than I can possibly be aware of. And that's a transition that a person makes from the here and now to there's, there, there's, there's spiritual forces going on here. God's up to something that, that I didn't, didn't know. But, and this is where, where I think God did this with Elijah without Elijah necessarily realizing it. One of the keys, when I work with someone with long-term depression, and I, I won't have a chance to say this as clearly as I would like, if you've never been significantly depressed, you have no idea. I, I had a guy who was, he's brilliant, he's written books, he's wonderful, he was a supervisee of mine, and he came in one day with an apology, he said, Mike, I'm so sorry, I, I, I I have to apologize, not to me, just in general. He says, I've been counseling people with depression for years. And I gave him all the techniques and everything. And then I had to take some medication for a kidney or something. And it, was, it triggered a severe depression. And I had no idea. Oh, wow. I had no idea. So, so be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Yeah. But sometimes, even with that pain of depression, one of the, the best ways after a lot of prayer, thinking, whatever, is, to, is to, to address this issue. Something must matter more than your pain. Mm. Something must matter more than your pain because it becomes all-consuming. becomes my... my, 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 my uh, if you didn't write that down, you might want to write that one down. That's a good, that was a good yeah. one. Something must matter more. I must, and then if, if, to, to, to flesh that out a little bit more, I must allow something to matter more than my pain. Mm -hmm. And that's moving out of myself. And if anybody's, I tell people, especially as they get older, somebody's watching you and they're asking the question, okay, so when you get older, when life gives you some very difficult things, is God worth following and is life worth living? And, and, and no one can answer that like a parent, by the way. A grandparent, great-grandparent, you know, it, no one can answer that because they've lived it. And so that must matter more than your pain. And when it does, then there's joy yeah. in the middle of sorrow. Yeah, that's great stuff. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to invite the band out. Before you go, Mike, I had one last question. That's the band's coming out. If you had one verse, you, if, let's say you're sitting in front of Elijah in the cave. If you had one verse you would give him, what would you give to him? And what would you give to those listening to that? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the one that I, that I mentioned before. I would, I would say, yes, Elijah, you have sorrow. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Okay, so that's it's a fallen world. It's, it's tough. So start to get to the place where, yeah, okay, yeah, it's, it's difficult. But there is joy even in the middle of sorrow. And, you, you know, even the, the things that you were saying, where has God moved? Where could God be moving in the middle of all of this? Now, that, that's not an easy thing to think about when you're just down and life is over and I don't want to live anymore. But you have to fight for that. And this is where church comes in. Church comes in it's very patiently, very kindly, without pressure, saying, God's not done yet. You know, I know this is very hard. I know this is very hard. But there, there's joy even if you don't find that spouse. There's joy even if you don't get that job or your kid doesn't come back to the nest. There's joy. But you must seek it and see where God whispers or sometimes shouts. Hmm. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. Let's thank Mike for all the work he's done through this series. Thanks, Mike.